doubts about whether or not all of this is real. Now, I wonder if you sometimes have felt that or feeling that right now. But friends, the good news is that even in our doubts, the God whom we seek to be sure of is certain to meet us where we are in order to assure us of his faithfulness. Here's a quote from Pastor J.C. Ryle. Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. So to any brothers and sisters here this morning for whom faith is hard and the burdens of this life is heavy, I want to encourage you. I want to show you in our passage this morning the greatest prophet, the greatest man that was ever born before Christ. And I want to show you this man of faith struggling with doubt. But more importantly, I want to show you Jesus. I want to show you Jesus as the promised Messiah who I believe and who the Bible tells us is worthy of our life, worthy of our trust, and also worthy of our faith. So let's take a look at our passage today, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 15. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 816. I'll go ahead and read it loud. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are three things I want to point out from today's passage, and I, there are three things that I want us to walk away understanding this morning. And they pertain to John's situation at hand in this passage, and the way Jesus handles and responds to that situation. So here are my three points. First, John's doubts, and we'll take a look at that from verses 1 through 3, verses 2 to 3 in particular, and then Jesus' answer, verses 4 and 6, and then finally, Jesus' testimony from verses 7 through 15. So John's doubts, Jesus' answer, and then finally, Jesus' testimony. So first, John's doubts. Our passage begins with John the Baptist. He was a modest man. But the Bible talks about him, and as we know, in camel hair garment, right, secured by a leather belt, and then diet, his diet consisting of mainly locusts and honey. 
he was a modest man. He was a prophet. So he was a messenger. And particularly not just a regular kind of messenger, he was a messenger of God. And his mission was to prepare a people for the coming Messiah. So he preached. He preached a very simple but clear message. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That message was no more popular in his day than it is in ours, yet our need of it, it is urgent now as it was then. And because of that because of that message, he was met with opposition, hostility, persecution, and in today's passage in particular, imprisonment. So our passage begins with John the Baptist thrown into prison. We know this because his imprisonment is mentioned back in Matthew 4. So we know that his, he, he's been in prison for some time now. And then later in Matthew 14, we find out actually the exact reason for his imprisonment, which is, which is his punishment for the fiery and blatant way he spoke against a king, King Herod at the time, and particularly his marriage. So John, as he sits in Herod's prison, waiting likely execution, is perplexed. He's confused. He's wondering, what's going on? Where's Jesus in the midst of all this? So what does he do? He sends his disciples, his followers, whom he was obviously in touch with, to ask Jesus, a question. And this is why I want you to see the honest doubts of John the Baptist. John doubts Jesus. He's afflicted with doubts and struggling when it comes to his faith. So therefore he says in effect in verse 3, take a look at me, he says, hey, I believed you're the Messiah, but I'm starting to wonder, are you really the one? Or is there someone coming after you? Now, I think he feels this way for several reasons, and I think it's important for us to look closely and peel the layers of his doubt because to, to examine why he's feeling this way. And because I think we often find ourselves doubting for very similar reasons. So the first reason, which I think is also the most obvious one, is his predicament, John's difficult and discouraging situation. Here was John a prophet in the wilderness, who proclaimed God's word with boldness, preparing the way for the Messiah, and then pointing people to Christ. But now as a result of that, he was sitting in, in prison, experiencing the lows, lowest of lows all by himself, and assaulted by horrible and accusing thoughts of doubt. He was doubting in part because of his circumstance. And I think many of us can understand this. I think we doubt, uh, typically not when certain things are going well, you know, when we have to navigate through challenging circumstances, when we can't know, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, that's when doubt kicks in and we are troubled by that. I think this is something that John is going through right now. Well, second reason, his unmet expectations. John is struggling with doubt because Jesus is failing to meet his expectations. Take a look with me to verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ he sent word by his disciples. So John has been hearing about the deeds of the Christ. And so the deeds in verse 2 here are referring to Jesus' entire ministry thus far. But I think if we just take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's referring to the preceding accounts, a couple of chapters that come, which are the way in which Jesus was uh, ministering to the people, typically through works of healing and miracles. So just as a quick overview, you don't have to turn your Bibles there. I can kind of remind you of what's been happening. So in chapter 8, Jesus' cleansing of the leper. 
the healing of the centurion's servants, the calming of the storm for his disciples, and then the rescuing of the demon-possessed. And then in chapter 9, we find Jesus' healing of the paralytic, the restoring of a dead girl back to life, and the healing of the blind and the mute. And so these are all these deeds that when John is speaking in verse 2, he's thinking about those things. And I think, you know, if you think about it, and this point of all these deeds of Jesus' wondrous miracles was to really kind of serve the single purpose to demonstrate the identity of Jesus. So Jesus is not just simply going there and just, you know, healing and restoring people just to kind of get a, a big following. All those things were meticulous ways in which Jesus was doing to, to show them, to show his people, hey, you know what, I'm the Messiah. So they were in part like credentials, his credentials to confirm that he indeed was the chosen Messiah that had been foretold all the way in the Old Testament. So if we think about it, these mighty deeds by Christ honestly should have reinforced John's confidence in him, in Jesus' messiahship. But here in our chapter, we see otherwise. So why does John, who had such a high view of Jesus, now question him all of a sudden? I think almost certainly, as I said, the main answer has to do with his expectations not being met. And these expectations can be found clearly in Matthew 3, where we find John preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 13 in particular. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Throughout his entire ministry, John had been announcing someone who would not only come here to baptize someone with the Holy Spirit, not only to perform miracles, not only to train his followers, but one who would come with stern judgment. One who would come uh, to, to separate the wheat and the chaff and to burn the latter. Uh, but, he, but Jesus was not doing that at the moment. He wasn't obviously imposing judgment on the wicked. So to John and to the Jews, the reality was grim, far from what they had anticipated. Roman authority still reigned, right? Still, when sin was still rampant, religious and, uh, and, and political corruption was still ruled, and everything seemed like it had been the same for generations. And this Messiah who was supposed to come, all, come and fix all of this wasn't doing any of that. And so John was starting to doubt. And John is thinking, isn't the Messiah supposed to come and fix all of this? But the reality was not the case He was in jail, feeling as if God had left him and the devil had taken his place. There was no place to rest his own head, no comfort, no peace, no deliverance. So doubts buzzed around his brain like the flies around his face. But it's interesting, how does he deal with that? How does he deal with doubt? Does he sulk? Does he just sort of drop his head and shuffle off? Does he despair? No, he goes immediately to the Lord. He sends his two disciples to find out if Jesus is really the one. So friends, I want to make a point here and say that what differentiates a Christian and a non-Christian is not simply an absence of doubt. Because I think, frankly, that's impossible. But it's what we do. It's what we believe and what we hold on to in the midst of it. Christians look to Christ and listen to what he has to tell us. Which takes us to our second point, Jesus' answer. 
Take a look with me to starting at verse 4, where we find Jesus' answer, his response to the doubts of John the Baptist. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. And in verse 5, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Friends, Jesus' answer is simple. He answers them by quoting scripture, by just reading the Bible back to them. Verses 4 and 5 are picking up the phrases from Isaiah 35, which we just read. Pastor Chris just read that in our scripture reading. And then a little bit from Isaiah 61, which were all allusions pointing to Christ himself, the chosen one from the Old Testament. And this reference to Isaiah would have been something that John had already known. He'd, pre- he'd preached that message. So in other ways, Jesus is saying, when, he, when, when John is to, uh, to John's disciples, he's saying, hey, don't you see that my, me fulfilling the prophecies? Haven't you seen and heard my works of healing thus far? Why can't you believe? Well, I know not everything's fulfilled yet, but trust me. Trust me that I am the one that will bring full and final judgment. And so Jesus, who is sovereign, who knows all things, who knows our hearts, knows that John would recognize him in these words, even though not everything had been fulfilled yet, even though he's still sitting in prison, in the midst of a difficult circumstance, even with his expectations not being met. He knew that John had faith and needed just a little bit of encouragement. So he knew that this old promise would bring him out the right amount of peace that John needed to sustain in the few difficult days he had remaining. You know, I read this and I wonder how I would have reacted to such an answer. You know, to simply just hear these words, but practically nothing really being changed. Still in prison. You know, still with my problems. Still under someone else's authority. Still waiting. But I do want to point out that, that this is not just some random guy answering John's doubts. He's not just some teacher, some prophet. He's Christ, the promised Messiah. Jesus, as we know, is God in flesh, incarnate, who would later be crucified by those whom he created. Well, John had no idea. John had no idea at this time. He had no idea that John would willingly offer himself as a sacrifice, who would willingly die on the cross to bring God's plan of judgment and to redeem mankind, to redeem sinners. But the most loving person, Jesus himself, knew that the best answer, the best solution to doubt was truth. The truth that was heard and believed. So when Jesus is repeating these Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah, what he's doing here is he's expressing the most palpable and most just the most loving expression that he could ever do to someone that's in doubt. It's not just simply just someone taking a book and reading it loud. John is doing the most. Jesus is doing the most loving act to John, and Jesus was familiar with John's sorrows and grief, just like the way Jesus is familiar with our sorrows and our griefs and our problems. He knows the satanic storms that break on the saints when we are alone and when we feel weak. Jesus loved John. So the teaching here is simple. The antidote to doubt is the word of God. To fight doubt without a foundation in God's word is both foolish and futile. It's just some as outrageous as a fisherman without a rod, a butcher without a knife. A knight without a sword. You cannot face the problems of doubt without the word of God, let alone any problem in life. So church, I want to ask, how are you fighting doubt? How are you overcoming it? If you were to honestly examine your lives today, how much and how often 
Are you depending on God's word to give you comfort? I look around, there are a lot of parents and grandparents. So parents and grandparents. How are you examples and models in your faith? And how is that being being shown to your children and grandchildren? Are you similarly like John, maybe struggling, but seeking to go to God's word for comfort? You realize how big of an influence you are in shaping the faith of your children. 53 years ago, my grandfather came to faith. He was a farmer in South Korea. That's where the Olympics are happening right now. And um, he was around like 10, 15 miles away from the nearest church. And uh, he went into the town to get some, he would always go once a month to get some supplies. And when he would do it, he would hear some music coming out of the church. And that would just pique his interest. And as a young man, he would go in. And uh, he just sat in. He had no idea what was being preached, what what was being sung. It was a Methodist church. And he went week one, week two, week three. And then finally, the Lord was kind to just soften his heart. He was convicted of his sins. He met the Lord. He placed his trust in him. And then he got married. And then married to a Christian. And they had my father. My father grew up in a Christian home. Saw the ways in which, I mean, my grandparents weren't perfect, but they, the, the way in which they trusted Christ, that came and, and was given to my father. The Lord was kind to my father. He became a Christian. He's pastoring now in Tennessee. And for me, I grew up in a Christian home to be able to see that, the faith being given to kindly to my grandparents, then being passed on to my dad, and then being to me. Parents and grandparents, your influence, even if you don't think like that, it will carry on, and there's big influence in the way God will use you to disciple your children. I encourage you uh, to, to, to look at John as an example of fighting your doubt by going to God's word immediately. So our job as Christians to believe and teach this truth to ourselves and lend courage to younger folks and to older folks, whoever it is, who feel maybe beaten down and bruised. It reminds us to look outside ourselves, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as, as said in, in the book of Hebrews. Friends, the answer, to answer, the Jesus' answer, is to seek him through his word. Cling to Christ and watch him uphold your, with you with his strength. And I promise you, you will be amazed by the way in which he does that. Year after year, just look back. Look with me to verse 6, the closing statement of his answer. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does he mean by that? Well, I think it's a gentle rebuke, a gentle warning. If you want to be blessed, he says, then don't stumble over me. Don't doubt. The word offended in Greek, it means a trap. So, you know, it's like a trap was like a crooked crooked stick. This animal would bite it and the bait would fall off and then eventually just go in and kill him. So it became a word that meant offended. So the Lord is saying this, if you want to be blessed... Don't allow anything I do or anything I say to lure you into the trap of doubt and make you stumble. Don't doubt. Because if you doubt, you won't be blessed. It's a beatitude in Matthew 5. It says, blessed is a man who doesn't doubt, but trusts. That's what he's saying here. So it's a tender rebuke, but I think a rebuke of love. Jesus is teaching us here that we should not be content with doubt, with suspicion, and with weak faith. That's because weak, stammering, crawling faith is for one's entire life is not the depiction of saving faith in the New Testament. Never. Faith that saves is characterized as being increasingly growing. 
increasingly stable and increasingly steadfast, never shifting from the hope of the gospel. It endures till the end, and it matures to bear fruit. So I admit, I mean, there are different seasons that make us wobblier than others. You know, but that does not mean that, that we should be a spiritual infant for, for the rest of our lives. You know, the Bible warns us to not, on, not to feed ourselves with milk, but on solid food. Because of those who just feed on milk are just, is just about a child. So doubt and distrust is not a biblical response to God of steadfast love and truth. When we refuse to trust him, when we refuse to when we reject him, what we're doing there is we're slandering him. Martin Luther says this, There is no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him, as we do when we do not trust him. What greater rebellion against God? What greater wickedness? What greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? For what is this but to make God a liar or to doubt that he is untruthful? That is to ascribe truthfulness to oneself but lying and vanity to God. Weak faith does not excuse us. It does not make allowance for doubting God or his gospel. Stable and steadfast, constantly growing, and in the long perspective is a standard for every Christian sitting in this room. The Holy Spirit in us never protects or excuses us. Doubt never encourages us to doubt. Standing firm in our faith is our calling. And where our weakness exists, and we are all weak, true faith must humbly cry out, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we're not to sustain, we're not to coddle, we're not to preserve our doubt, but to ask and plead and go to God. He will change our doubts into stronger faith. And this is not a task that we can do alone. It is a corporate thing that we are to do with the church. So certainly gathering here this morning is one way to do it. Seeing other saints worshiping Christ to sing hymns and to hear the prayers and praises is to commit ourselves to grow in faith and to fight our doubt. So we're to help each other, not just today, but throughout the week. As we think about maybe those around us that are struggling financially, that are struggling in ways that we don't know. And how are you doing that? Right? And the list goes on in terms of how we can do that. But I want to encourage you to, this week to think about, hey, perhaps how you could be of spiritual help to anyone those here at Catonsville Baptist Church. Let's move on to our last point. Point three is Jesus' testimony. John is struggling with doubt. He answers him with, John's, uh, with his answer. And then finally, he testifies. So Jesus, upon answering John's doubts, then gives the greatest testimonial to anyone who ever lived on this side of the earth. He tells us that John the Baptist was the greatest man who had ever lived up until this time. So if you look at verse 7, that's what we'll pick up. It says, As the disciples departed, Jesus began to say to the multitude concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Jesus asks a very simple question. He knows what they're thinking. And they're thinking, well, John, this greatest, this, this man who was preaching, repent for the kingdom is near. He's doubting. Can we, can we truly believe this man? Isn't he the one who announced that the Messiah was coming? And so Jesus is saying, well, when you went into the wilderness, did you go out there to just see a reed shaken by the wind? So what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding them of the greatness of John. And he does it by pointing to their own attitude and, and their own experience with John. He doesn't want them to see John as a reed, as, as a wavering kind of person. So look at what he does in the first statement. It says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? So in other words, why did you leave your hometown of Galilee? 
and go all the way out into the desert to see this guy? Why would you make such a long and arduous journey to see him? What was it that really attracted you to this man? Was it because he was simply a reed shaken with the wind? Did you really go out there because he was a weak character, a wavering kind of person blowing back and forth? What's the obvious answer? It's no. Right? Because if they wanted to see someone like that, if they wanted to see a weak kind of person, then well, they could have found them in the temple right where they were. You know, they were all over the place, all over the religious system. They certainly didn't need to go all the way out in the desert to find one. So something to point out here, these reeds, like the actual reed itself, are very common reeds. So they would actually grow in the bank of the Jordan River, and they were frequently growing in the thousands. They were by thousands everywhere in the Jordan, and they were very common ordinary things. And the Lord is saying, did you go out there because he was just some common ordinary garden variety guy? Blown away like everybody else, you know, with no strength and no conviction. And so the reed that's blowing back and forth in verse 7 symbolizes a man who yields to popular opinion, a man who is blown about by ideas and pressures, a man who, who wavers on what he believes, he doesn't know what to believe, a man who veers from side to side, a man with no conviction, what I like to say, a man without a backbone, right? And what he's saying is, here, did you really go out there to see a man like this? You know, you didn't have to come out here to see just some, this kind of guy. And that's exactly what he's saying in our next verse, in verse 8. He says, well, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So in other words, did you go out there to see just another typical guy that works in the court, that gives you royal favors, you know, that just does whatever the king tells him to do? Did you go out there to just simply hear a sellout? And then here's a final question. And then in verse 9, it says, a third question. It says, well, what did, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And here's the first question that deserves a yes answer. They didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind, nor did they go out there to see a man dressed in soft clothing. They went out there to see a prophet, but far more than a prophet, the very herald of the Messiah. That's why in the verse, first half of verse 11, he says, Truly, I say to you, anyone though is born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So, he's a guy, and he's not a reed shaken by the wind. He is not simply a person that works in king's court. He says he's the prophet. Well, not just the greatest prophet, not just any prophet, but the greatest prophet. So, Jesus is handling this. John is doubting. People are seeing the, the doubts. And Jesus is taking a step back and defending him. And so Jesus tells the crowds, no, you, what you're thinking is wrong. John the Baptist is the greatest prophet. He's not simply the, again, he's the, he's the greatest person born ever before me. And that's a, quite a statement, right? You think about the Old Testament giants like Abraham, Moses, Elijah, King David. And he's saying, well, well yeah, they're great, but no, this guy's greater. He's greater than anyone that came before him. But what does he mean by that? Well, the statement had everything to do not just with who John was, but with the message that John was preaching. What made him great was the great message he was heralding. So many prophets had come before him, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and a host of others, but none of these holy men of God had the distinct privilege of announcing the king, King Jesus, when he came. The message that they had was simply that the Messiah was coming. So Abraham, 
Jeremiah, Isaiah, you name it all. They were saying, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. But John had, had a privilege of declaring a different, a clear message that not that Jesus was coming, no, but that Jesus was here. So John had not only predicted the Messiah, he actually baptized the Messiah. He touched the living Christ. And, and he not only said, he is coming, he is coming, he is coming, but he had, this, he had the ability to say, no, he has come. He is in front of me. I am seeing him. Don't you see he is the one? He was the forerunner of Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy. And then that's, that's amazing. And then I think what makes it even greater, this passage, is this next statement. And I think this, this, this what he's doing here is, is absolutely amazing. So you look at the second half of verse 11. He says, well, John the Baptist is great. And he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. It's a confusing statement when I first read it. But don't miss what Jesus is doing here. He's making a shift from all the people, from all the days of Abraham who have pointed to Christ. And he says, well, John, right here, this is Jesus, this is John. John is the climax of a pre-Christian revelation. This is as good as it gets when it comes to the Old Testament ending and then coming to Christ. But none of them, not even the highest among them, who came before me, can compare to the position and privilege that is reserved for those who will come after me. This statement is incredible. All these men, including John the Baptist, we just talked about, had an imperfect, unfinished picture of Christ the Messiah. They had no idea what the Messiah would do. But all of us sitting in this room, even the least person among us, has the full gospel message. We have a fuller and a greater understanding of Christ than anyone that has come before him. So he is saying John was the greatest prophet. And for that, we are to remember that. But since the kingdom, and since the coming of Christ, we have even a greater privilege and position than he did. And think about it, even in all of his greatness, John the Baptist was not sure of what the Messiah would do, but we do. We have the privilege in proclaiming the full gospel of Christ crucified as we sit on this side of the cross, and we, know, we don't say, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, nor do we say, Jesus has come, Jesus has come. No, he has come, and he has conquered and finished it all. And that's a message we carry. That's the position we get to have as we see Jesus with his ministry being done, with him dying and fulfilling the cross. And so we can say, well, Jesus has finished and completed the work of salvation in our lives. So we live in a reality of victory. And that's a position, that's a position, what a position we have in redemptive history. John the Baptist was blessed, but we are more favored to live in an era more cognizant of his grace. We get to be stewards of this gospel message fully and completely. And those of you who are not Christians in this room, what is that message? What's the message of Jesus Christ? The spotless, sinless Son of God who came to earth, who died the death we deserve, overcame the wages of sin and death itself by dying on the cross and then resurrecting from the grave. He offers through us, to us, by his death and resurrection, this free gift of forgiveness and the perfect righteousness that we can have through him. And if you believe, God will give you eternal life. And this should motivate us in so many ways. So many ways. But I think particularly in the way that we share the gospel. In our evangelism, we can have confidence to be bold in sharing our faith as we stand as a more powerful witness of the gospel. 
One of my friends is, is going to, on missions. He is, quit his job. He was a lawyer. Um, he is raising support. He has finished that process, and he's leaving in two weeks. And, him, and you know, he, it's the first time he's doing that. He was telling me about some of the anxieties and doubts he has as, he, as he's preparing for that process, uh, a little with even some opposition from his parents that were concerned. But man, that, that man is going out with even a greater message than John the Baptist had. Right? And that gives him confidence to go out there despite some of the doubts that he may have. And, and that's something that we have here as well as we share in this neighborhood. As we leave this church, we are leaving here with a much fuller and gospel understanding than anyone that has ever lived. If we even have a fuller message than what John had, how much more are we to be assured of God's faithfulness in our lives? Isn't this the greatest news? The greatest antidote? The greatest answer? The greatest testimonial to doubt? That's why he ends the passage in verse 15. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is beckoning John, or beckoning us to realize that he is the promised Messiah. So to conclude, let's revisit the question I began with. What are we to do and how are we to respond when we encounter struggles of doubt? Well, it's certainly not to remain in it. It's our passage, nor is our passage telling us to simply be like John. It's not teaching us a moral lesson to be like John. Well, the answer is to realize, to believe, and to understand, and to embrace the fully revealed and the completed work of Christ as mentioned in God's Word, as we see here today, because He is our greatest testimonial, our greatest answer to our doubt, because Jesus has not only come or is coming, but conquered and has completed the work of salvation. And we are to praise God for this treasure. That's why at the end of chapter 11, he says, and I'll end with this, he extends an invitation. He says, an invitation to come to him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, cast your doubts to Christ. Rest in him and praise God for what he has done, the completed work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift you have given to us, which is your word, which is Christ himself. So, Lord, whatever our worries may be, whatever life situation we may be in, Father, help us to trust in you. We pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be in us, to be reminded of your past faithfulness, your current faithfulness, and what you will do in our lives. We look not only to this kingdom that we live here, but to the kingdom that is eternal, heaven, Lord. Pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.